Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back to another episode of Open Globe Talk. This is your host, Rizal Nathani, and in this episode, we are traveling to Haiti with Dr. William Myers, who is an incredible global ophthalmologist, as we will come to hear of his exemplary service work. He obtained his MD from Dartmouth Medical School and did his ophthalmology residency at Northwestern University, where he is also faculty. He then did an orbital and oculoplastics fellowship at Medical College, Wisconsin, And since then, he has performed over 30,000 cataract surgeries till date. Among his many contributions to the field of ophthalmology, which include co-developing dropless cataract surgery in 2006, he is the co-instructor of the annual ASCRS and AO courses on intracameral agents for anterior segment surgery, featuring leading international ophthalmic researchers from four continents. And with many more collaborations internationally, I just want to welcome Dr. Myers to the show and learn more about what he has been up to and also discuss the work that has been taking place in Haiti. So it's a pleasure to have you, sir. Hello. Thank you. Um, So Dr. Myers, before we kind of jump into your work in Haiti, I wanted to ask, like I do with every guest speaker, why did you choose ophthalmology? Well, I always was interested in the sciences from a fairly young age and did better in those than I did in other kinds of fields uh, uh, that were less technical. So I, I knew I was going to likely go into medicine. And so I ended up going training at Dartmouth. And during medical school, I decided that ophthalmology would be an interesting way to get started. Dartmouth at that point was a three-year, year-round school. And so I took a year off after uh, the first two years in order to uh, do some research in neurology. I thought maybe then I wanted to be a neurologist, but I decided that ophthalmology was a happier field to be in because people actually did well. And so during my internship, I, I switched from a neurology focus to an ophthalmology focus. Uh, but during that pre-residency uh, fellowship, I was able to go to Bascom Palmer in Florida and spend uh, six weeks uh, working with a giant in the field, uh, Jay Lawton Smith, who is a neuro-ophthalmologist. And that gave me the idea that those beautiful things I was seeing through the slit lamp were amazing and beautiful. And I wanted to be in ophthalmology. Um, and quite a different route than what it used to be. Now we have four-year medical school. I'm kind of surprised that, you know, my path was a little bit similar to you. I'm taking like a, an extra year just to learn about ophthalmology and it's been great. So going forward with that, tell us why you did a fellowship in orbital and oculoplastics fellowship after completing a residency in ophthalmology. Uh, well, I was uh, in Chicago for my Uh, residency, and I decided that I wanted to work in Evanston, Illinois, which is the home of Northwestern University. And the practice that I joined and the hospital I was going to join uh, required a fellowship in some ophthalmic field or some field in surgery in order to be on the surgery department staff at Evanston Hospital. So that led me to look at which areas in ophthalmology I could get this done. And because my wife was uh, working and living in Chicago, uh, it needed to be relatively close. So I looked uh, in Milwaukee and uh, the choices of subspecialties, uh, I wanted something that would be one year rather than two. And uh, for oculoplastics seemed to be the best fit to incorporate into a general ophthalmology practice. So I ended up doing a orbit and oculoplastic fellowship, not primarily because I was super excited in the field, but because it was necessary to accomplish what I wanted to do. So after the fellowship, 
Can you share a little bit of a of the appeal of cataract versus incorporating oculoplastics and maybe going further into that field? So uh, I was a busy surgical ophthalmologist over the years. I joined a practice uh, where the senior partner had uh, been one of the very first to take uh, Charles Kelman's course on phacoemulsification. And so he had been doing phacoemulsification for longer than anybody else in Chicago. And so I decided that one, uh, cataract surgery generally led to outcomes you could predict at the end of surgery, whereas oculoplastic surgery, you really, at the end of surgery, had no idea how they were going to look when they got fully healed. You assumed they would look like you intended, but you didn't know that. And so I liked that certainty. I liked the uh, preciseness of uh, cataract surgery. Probably the lack of bleeding as well was appealing. And so I ended up going into cataract surgery because I really got a leg up by working with someone who is one of the pioneers in the field. Uh, we started with FACO machines that uh, you had, the nurse had to tune at the beginning, kind of like one might tune an old type ham radio uh, until it sounded right uh, to get the ultrasound frequency right. And uh, the fluidics back then were not very good. Uh, the choices were high FACO and low FACO and not easily refined beyond that. So it, it was quite a challenge. Uh, it was a little bit like uh, driving a Ford's car without brakes. I'm really impressed by the amount of work you've done in the field of ophthalmology. And I'm glad that you were able to you know, refine your technique over the years. So in your opinion, what has changed um, in the field of cataract as you've gone through and practice as an ophthalmologist? Well, some of my career uh, was uh, back in the dinosaur era, uh, as I said, with the FACO. When I first started residency, uh, the primary procedure at Northwestern was intracapsular cataract surgery, no implant. So back then people wore the very thick glasses. The recovery was between three and six weeks before the prescription was stable. Uh, there was a lot of astigmatism generated, and there was a high rate of certain complications like vitreous loss, macular edema, and uh, reasonably higher rates of endophthalmitis or infection inside the eye. While I was in training, uh, I, we started to make the move to extracapsular cataract surgery. There was one surgeon who was doing FACO reasonably well at the university, but probably not as proficiently as the partner I joined later. Extracapsular cataract surgery was a refinement in that it generally helped keep the vitreous from coming forward and leaving the eye, and therefore complications were reduced. Um, I think I was the first one to do a non-FACO extracapsular cataract surgery in about 50 years at Northwestern. I convinced uh, one of my attendings that this was a procedure that was uh, looking promising and that this was a patient that had a big macular scar, wasn't going to see terribly well anyway. If there were some complications, it was not going to be dramatically affecting the patient's outcome. And they agreed. And so it happened. When I went into practice, uh, I was doing probably 30% phacoemulsification and 70% extracapsular cataract surgery. And over the first 10 years, and probably roughly 10,000 cataracts, maybe it was 15 years, the percentages moved toward more and more phaco. And by that point, it pretty much did phaco on everybody. But having the experience of doing intracapsular cataract surgery, extracapsular cataract surgery, and phaco emulsification uh, gave me the opportunity later in life uh, when I got into global ophthalmology to be able to use some of the techniques that were early in my career as training for the global cataract surgery procedure uh, referred to as M6. It's perfect you mentioned global ophthalmology because that's my next question. Like, how, how did you get interested in global ophthalmology? And when did you decide that you wanted to be a global ophthalmologist? 
Well, uh, when I reached about age 60, I thought that running a private practice with it one point, at least a staff of nearly 50 people, that it would be best to find an exit strategy before it was too late. And when I went into practice, you basically bought into a practice or you paid a certain amount of what you would have made in income each year. So you made less money, but you were buying into the practice at the same time. In this day and age with hospital groups and uh, venture capital and a whole bunch of other corporate entities, in effect, hiring doctors and hiring ophthalmologists, there are very few ophthalmologists coming out that can afford to buy into a practice. And a lot that, for lifestyle reasons, don't want to be an entrepreneur, they want to be an employee. And so it was hard to find somebody who wanted to buy a large practice. It was a little before venture capital came in. So I started looking at hospitals uh, that would be willing to buy me out. Part of that was to work for them for a few years uh, in order to generate income for them, which in effect bought the practice. So I ended up working for another hospital system uh, north of Chicago for a couple of years. And I realized I was not cut out to work for somebody else. I had had too much free reign with the way I did things and I enjoyed the successes and I suffered with the uh, lack of successes uh, along the way, but uh, it was fun for me. And I enjoyed the entrepreneurial aspect of private practice and much more so than being micromanaged by people who are telling me I couldn't have a scribe or I could have a scribe or you know I need to see X number of patients a day and I had to see them in X number of minutes. It just didn't fit with, with my personality. So I started to look at an exit strategy during those two years that I was uh, at a hospital setting. And um, I finally left at the end of the two years when my commitment was up. I was looking to see if I could be part-time uh, teaching at the, the VA in Chicago. There's one in the, the city of Chicago called Westside. There was Westside, now it's called Jesse Brown VA. And I won't go into a lot of detail there. Yes, it's a big organization, but it's a more benign bureaucracy than a corporate bottom line one. And you can usually fly below the radar and you know do quite well. Uh, some people really enjoy that because it's a pretty intense uh, practice with a lot of very sick patients. I enjoyed the surgical teaching. That had always been a main interest of mine. Even in private practice, I created a arrangement with Northwestern. They had lost their VA and it had hadn't found their way to the new VA that is shared with the University of Illinois. So at that point, they had lost a lot of their surgical experience. So I, I developed at my own ASC that I owned with a number of other people. Uh, we had a working arrangement with Northwestern that the residents could come and, and work in surgery, work with my patients uh, in the surgery center. So they'd learn more what it was like to operate outside of a university setting that actually set Northwestern and I think still sets it apart from a lot of other programs and that you really get some private practice type experience. Uh, so I ended up working long enough at the VA to get a pension that was a total of five years. And I, I ended up first working full-time because the person I came to work with died suddenly the week I was going to join. And so I ended up being the effective leader of the ophthalmology group. During that time, there was somebody above me that uh, was also chief of education at the VA, so she couldn't have both jobs. So I worked with her, but I did the day-to-day -day management. So anyway, that, that's my VA experience. Uh, when I hit my five years, I decided this was time to do something else. So in that one period where I had stopped practice for a few months while waiting for the VA, I started looking through and trying to figure out what I'd like to do with the rest of my life. So I read books like uh, How to Retire Happy and things like that. And pretty much all the things they talked about weren't things that I was all that interested in. I realized what I was interested in was travel, teaching, and 
finding something new within an area that I already knew. So I had uh, two things on my bucket list. Uh, one was to do more interesting scuba diving than I had done before. So that one was fairly easy to arrange. I worked with my local scuba shop and they were setting up a trip to the Philippines. So I joined in on that and had a wonderful time. And I recommend that to anybody who likes being underwater, uh, breathing through a tube. At the same time, I had been friends uh, with a number of people and I subscribed to Caronet, which is a cornea listserv uh, for cornea specialists around the world. I'm not a cornea specialist, but I uh, like to learn about it. And it was one of the better uh, listservs that allowed me access. And one of the people on the listserv indicated that uh, they were setting up trips in Haiti. And so at that point I said, well, that, that's close by, it's easy to get to. I can go with somebody who's already done it uh, many times. I don't really know how to do the surgery down there, but they do have a FACO machine and I could do you know, FACO when I get down there and maybe I can learn from him while I'm there. So I signed up for a trip. It was four or five months later. Uh, for Haiti, there's no need for a visa from the United States. Uh, basically, you can enter the country, you pay $10 in cash and they let you in. And, you know, we went to a facility uh, called, the facility was called Double Harvest. It was run by a uh, reverend in Tampa, Florida, who was originally a water engineer. And he went to Haiti and to Cuba, more to Cuba, to drill safe water wells for them that were deep wells as opposed to the shallow ones that were typically done in country. And in order to get to Cuba, he had to go through Haiti because there was no way to get from the United States to Cuba during that era. And so he saw all these people that were blind in Haiti. And so he he figured some of them probably just needed glasses. So he took a year's course in being an optician in order to make glasses for these people. And then he started going there and he learned to refract and he was able to help a number of people. But he realized there were all these people with dense cataracts that couldn't be helped with someone without a medical and surgical degree and experience. So he coordinated with uh, this guy, Matt Thompson out of Green Bay, who is one of my uh, three co-executive people in the organization Focus, which we'll get back to in a couple of minutes. But at, at that time, it was, we went down there. We, the first day we got there, you can fly down, takes about five hours from Chicago, two hours from Miami, and you can be operating three or five hours later, depending on where you're coming from. And then we stay in a, a safe hotel. Even, even today in Haiti, the hotel is probably the safest place in Haiti. It's defended by Irish Army retirees for the cell company Digicel. But at this time, we were in outside of Port-au-Prince, about 10 miles, which is about an hour and a half, in a place called Croix de Bouquet. And uh, it's out where the farmland begins in Haiti and called Double Harvest uh, from the Christian idea of instead of uh, giving a man a fish, you teach a man to fish and he can eat for the rest of his life. Uh, that's what they do on the farm there. And in effect, they built a clinic. Some general surgeons went down. Matt was recruited by them to talk to the optician who had set up a medical clinic there. And although he's just an optician, he's learned from ophthalmologists that have gone down there enough to take care of the medical aspects, most of it for ophthalmology. Uh, he brings cases in for us to review when we're there uh, where he doesn't know what to do and he prescribes glasses and makes them for the people who that's what they need. So it was a great place to come. He had already pre-selected uh, 70 to 100 patients. And uh, these were lined up for us to look at the day we got there. We'd say yes, no, and decide what kind of surgery, whether they'd get small incision cataract surgery, the global procedure, or whether they'd get FACO if they were younger, if their lenses weren't totally opaque, tended to do FACO on those. Uh, and it somewhat depended on the skills of the surgeons, but the cataracts there for people who do cataract surgery in the United States, they may see one or two of those types of cataracts a year. 
down there you can be doing you know 25 of them in one day uh, so the experience of working on very difficult cataracts uh, really it, it made me appreciate the many years I had done cataracts so at least I had some experience in the FACO aspect of it. Small incision cataract surgery was a different story in that I hadn't done it. I had just prepared myself by reading books about it from Himalaya Cataract Project, from Aravindai Hospitals in Southern India and uh, other places. And I watched YouTube videos of the procedure, but I hadn't actually done them. I did have some advantage in that I had done extracapsular cataract surgery. So a lot of the techniques are somewhat similar. There's bleeding, which you don't usually see in FACO because we're going through the cornea where there are uh, typically no blood vessels. So uh, it, it's a clean surgery, uh, whereas small incision cataract surgery, uh, there's nothing really small about it. It's smaller than an extracap, but it's a lot bigger than a FACO in terms of surgical dissection. So that's how I got to Haiti, uh, was working at Double Harvest. My question, just jumping off of that is, you know, now that you've mentioned all of these individuals who were struggling to find eye care in Haiti, how did you go about, uh, or how did the people that were with you go about finding a sustainable solution where they could educate their own individuals who were locals from Haiti to become ophthalmologists and address the ophthalmic issues that existed there? Uh, well, I was just about to transition from uh, working at uh, Double Harvest and uh, you know doing surgery, but part of this we felt like there was something more to be done. That you know we were going down, we were helping maybe a hundred patients over a five-day period. Uh, we would go home, those people would be happy, but we hadn't really done anything to make the process self-sustaining. And if we stopped going, uh, surgery would stop happening. Uh, and then uh, Matt Thompson uh, had uh, been asked by the third member of our current focus executive team to come look at the university. He had been uh, teaching one senior ophthalmologist uh, retina and vitreous uh, surgery over about a three to four year period with multiple trips to Haiti. Uh, his name is Dan Alter. And so he asked uh, Matt if he could uh, come out and on one of the next trips uh, go to the university. Uh, there's one large university that's run by the government. Uh, the hospital is called HUEH. Uh, which is the University Hospital of the State of Haiti. That's where uh, the residencies are for the most part. There are a few one-off ones with one resident, one doctor, which is more of an apprenticeship system. But uh, the way residents are chosen is that in effect, they choose which subspecialty they'd like to go in. And depending on their class ranking, uh, they get their choice, the, the ones that rank better in school have their choice of residencies, uh, whereas if they were lower in their class, they would be less likely to get their choice. Uh, they also have a system at the uh, government uh, medical school and residency that a certain number of residents who were supported completely by the government they have to uh, give back a certain amount of time after their residency rather than going directly into residency. So they have to do general medicine somewhere in the country. And then they get some priority uh, for one of the four slots for ophthalmology, for example. When we started, we were not getting uh, the best residents, the highest ranked residents, because ophthalmology was really no better than any of the other fields there. And people were tended, like in the United States, to, to gravitate toward internal medicine, OB, and uh, family medicine as what they wanted to do. Some went into surgery, and very few went into ophthalmology. Uh, so when we got there, we realized that the first thing that had to happen, there was a major earthquake in 2010 in Haiti that basically flattened Port-au-Prince. Uh, there were 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths from that earthquake. Uh, there was a more recent one this year, but it was in a much less populated area. It did cause a lot of damage. It was actually a bigger hurricane on the Richter scale, but uh, it wasn't as uh, devastating to the country. So for the last 10 years, they've been rebuilding the hospital. At this point, it's still not functional 12 years later. It's a concrete shell without uh, conduit or piping or any electricity in it. And so they're working out of buildings to me that look sort of like what you might see in a county fair, kind of shed-like buildings, uh, wards with uh, you know, 40 beds in them, no air conditioning, no, not a lot of uh, good equipment. So when we started visiting there, we decided that it was better to teach Haitians to be their own ophthalmologists than it was to do cases. And so we decided when we went down that we would do fewer cases than we would have done otherwise, because you really need to sit as in a U.S. residency and pick up a few steps here, a few steps there, and eventually you'll find that you're doing all the steps, and then you can uh, do enough of them that you're comfortable for the basic operations, particularly a cataract surgery without uh, previous trauma. You can get good at the procedure, and that was our goal. So the first thing we uh, did was to get them better equipment. We brought, bought microscopes on eBay, rehabbed them, and then shipped them in pallets down to Haiti. So we ended up with a total of uh, six microscopes. Two of them are in uh, an operating room where two cases are done at the same time. Uh, we've eventually built in uh, video monitors to this. And we're in the process of uh, having the cable company, we got them to donate a fiber optic line to the ophthalmology department. That's better than I have at my house. And it uh, should allow us to do real-time uh, monitoring of surgery with high enough resolution to actually see the surgery. Uh, in preparation for that, about four years ago, we developed a wet lab. Uh, Primarily, we realized in Haiti that, so some of the microscopes are used for that. Uh, we worked with Orbis and C International to get uh, silicone model eyes that can be used in a place where refrigeration is not commonplace. You know, to get pig eyes like might be used in the U.S., you know, you had to get them that day. They don't, the butcher doesn't take the eyes out of the head, so you end up getting a head. And then the residents have to take the eyes out in order to be able to use them in the wet lab. So it really wasn't practical. Uh, and then there's some issues with uh, some people in Haiti still practicing voodoo and uh, doing things with eyes is really considered uh, rather odd and evil in some way. So we ended up learning as we went along, we get support with instruments, disposables, we'll either bring down ones that can't be reused in the United States, but can be used in a wet lab. And we bring those to Haiti. And with these models, we're able to teach them a lot more. And they really like the hands-on aspect. Uh, the, you know, the teaching in a didactic sense is difficult because you know, our first language is, is English. And their first language is Haitian Creole, which is a verbal representation of what French sounds like. So if you hear it, it, you might pick up a word here or there if you know French. Uh, French is the business language. And so I know a little French, but not enough to really converse in it. So you know, we found there are a lot of workarounds we need to do. Uh, we're currently looking at, there's a feature in PowerPoint where you can get closed captionings in a language other than what's being spoken. So we're looking at maybe doing our lecture series. Uh, we have a, a young ophthalmologist, uh, Anna Bastos de Carvalho, uh, who's also on our board, who is fluent in France. She's from Portugal originally, and she's able to converse with, with the staff there. And she's uh, set up a series of uh, Zoom lectures uh, with French-speaking uh, ophthalmologists from around the world, although some of the topics need to still be done in English. So this closed captioning might close that loop and help their uh, ability to understand in real time during these talks. 
So we, we built the wet lab. Uh, we developed a didactic service. Uh, we encouraged everybody to take the uh, ICO exams, which is the international certifying type group. Uh, it's kind of like the OCAPs and the boards in the United States. Not quite as rigorous, but appropriate for countries that are starting with very little background. Uh, we're also in the process of developing fellowships in various subspecialties. Currently, we have one USAID grant for retinopathy of prematurity. So we've developed a screening program. The uh, young graduate is planning to do a surgical vitreoretinal fellowship, and we're beginning uh, to get all the things together so that Dr. Alter can teach that at the university, uh, but also do some of the surgeries uh, at separate, more private charitable institutions where the equipment can be maintained uh, better than at the uh, university hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's doing ROP and medical retina this year, and he'll start to do surgical retina sometime next year. Ana Bastos de Carvalho is a medical retina specialist. So a lot of the lectures are on that. Uh, and she can also be helpful. Uh, the other members of our board include uh, the chairman at the University of Illinois, Paul Chan, who has been very active in global ophthalmology. Uh, he had that group for the AAO. And we also have ties to ASCRS, the Cataract uh, Refractive Surgery Society, and David Chang, who's also very well known around the world for anterior segment surgery, primarily cataract surgery with his affiliation at Aravind. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where we are currently in the residency and fellowships. Our goal then is to bring uh, these graduates who now will have done at least four to five times more surgery than they did before, partly due to us coming down and partly due to the enthusiasm for the Haitian attendings to actually be there and attend surgery more. So assuming that the political situation in Haiti improves, will be able to have them do enough surgery that they can go to other places outside of Port-au-Prince and set up practices where they're really needed in the community. We have one pair of ophthalmologists who set up in a city called Saint-Marc, which is up the west coast of Haiti, about halfway. It's about two hours from Port-au-Prince. They had no surgical ophthalmologist uh, in the last many, many years. It is a location for partners in health. Uh, that has a family practice. Um, uh, res um, residency there. So they're able to share patients, uh, do the ophthalmic surgery for them. They're building a surgery center in a hospital that was also built by USAID in the past. And they're uh, in process, we've uh, already supplied them with an operating microscope, operating bed, autoclave, ultrasound, uh, pretty much everything they'll need to do cataract surgery, uh, including surgical trays. And I've connected them with uh, the Aravind Eye Hospital System uh, to get better sense of how to run their operations. Uh, Aravind is the place in the world that does the most cataract surgeries per year, where they do 200,000 cataract operations at their 10 hospitals over a year's period. And that's why they can do studies that compare a cohort of 1 million with another cohort of 1 million. Uh, I think those are the biggest studies ever done in the world. And so we have a lot of pieces going, but there are issues you know, with the geopolitical state in Haiti and before like we go to the geopolitical, I did want to ask you a question about the residency itself. Um, as you mentioned, there is a great need of ophthalmic surgeons who are Haitian to provide continuity of care. How long is this residency? If it's U.S. styled, I would assume it's four years, but was it initially much shorter or is it much shorter? Um, I think it always was three years of real residency and one year preceding that of internship in either medicine or surgery. That's still the case. They come to us, obviously, with virtually no 
ophthalmic training. Even most U.S. medical schools, it's a couple of days of ophthalmology. And if you're not interested in ophthalmology at that point in time, you probably remember nothing. So it, it was like that. And But now because of all these changes we've made in the department, it's really become the specialty of choice. People see that, you know, we have the best internet at the hospital by far. They'll come and eat their lunch in our conference room in order to use the internet. But there are also other things that they like about it that, you know, the surgery is doing well, that people, you know, you get immediate gratification. Uh, someone who is totally blind, light perception, vision, or hand motion, the next day can see well enough to walk around the room and see faces. And, you know, so you're, you're in effect curing the blind in a day. It's a, you know, very gratifying field for an American ophthalmologist. But when you think about American ophthalmology, most of the time, the surgeries we do are allowing people to drive at night for a few more years. It's not changing them from being stuck at home, you know, in a room and they can only leave home or do anything. They can't really cook without another family member being there. So in effect, two people are taken out of circulation in the country for every blind person. And what's unfortunate is that most of the blind, the ones that are under 50, it's refractive error. And the ones that are over 50, and in many cases over 30, it's cataracts. There, there are people, there's a lot of bad glaucoma in Haiti, and we don't tend to operate on them as much, although we're going to develop, uh, we're in the process of developing a glaucoma fellowship to try to address that. But in effect, there are a lot of people, their only problem is cataract in a 10 to 20 minute procedure done with low tech equipment for about $25 worth of supplies is, you know, very possible, but it isn't being done because there aren't enough surgeons in the country. Before the residents came out, they hadn't done enough surgery in residency. They would basically refract patients. And so the people under 50 were being served, but the people who are truly blind weren't. And, you know, if 80% of the ones with bilateral, mature, opaque cataracts, roughly 80% of them can be cured. Uh, there's another 20% that have other problems, uh, TB, HIV-related diseases, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy. And their diabetes is basically type 1 because very few people get to eat enough to become type 2 diabetics. There are some, there's some matriarchs and a few patriarchs that uh, are, you know, basically get all the food in the family. And some of them can be pretty large people, but uh, for the most part, most people don't live long enough to get type two, nor eat enough to get type two. Well, uh, you answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, what sorts of eye diseases do we find in Haiti? And one of the things you've mentioned was how they're building new residency programs outside of Port-au-Prince, but with Haiti's geopolitical climate, which I, I hope that you can discuss more about that, how sustainable is that communication between these different centers trying to cater to all of the population that may be located in sectors that are, you know, a mix of unsafe communities and safe communities? Um, well, the in, in Port-au-Prince, there are certain, it, there's always been certain areas that have been controlled by uh, gangs. The poorest neighborhoods, uh, there are places that are built on a really steep hill above Port-au-Prince. Uh, where there are no roads, it's too steep to put in a road. They basically are footpaths. Uh, there's a road that leads to the general area. Uh, I've never been there. Uh, there are a couple other areas that also have uh, major gang activity. But until this past year and a half or so, Haiti was reasonable if we stayed in the areas that you would consider, you know, there are areas of major metropolitan areas in the United States that are probably almost equally unsafe, but you know where you can go and where you shouldn't go. In Haiti, we don't have that innate knowledge, but our hosts, the people that, you know, kind of sponsor us, they provide their drivers for transportation, they know where not to go. So under normal times in Haiti, things wax and wane. So under normal times, which was up until about two years ago, 
our drivers and our guides knew how to get us between the hotel and the university or from the hotel out to Double Harvest or to some of the other hospitals around that have neonatal units for the ROP screening. I've also gotten support from Partners in Health because I've done some work with them, kind of preliminary. Uh, they're the biggest non-governmental health organization working in Haiti. They handle the middle, what they call the central plateau, which is the middle part of Haiti, not including Port-au-Prince. So they have a very established 35 years of uh, medical care and uh, they run one hospital that's probably the best hospital in the country. So I, I've learned to get around, but basically trusting our local sponsors to make sure that we're as safe as possible. Over the last two years and particularly the last six months, Haiti has really deteriorated. So the initial shock was the 2010 earthquake where Port-au-Prince was flattened. I first went uh, in 2015 to double harvest, but that was away from Port-au-Prince. And so that really wasn't having a major effect from uh, the earthquake. When we started working in Port-au-Prince, I mean, there, there's an area of the clinic where the building is falling down. And yes, we go in to look to see, and they have some old beds that are stored in there, but basically it's open to the environment, big cracks in the wall, and the roof could come down at any time. So that's not really being used. But the rest of it was in pretty good shape. We were probably the least affected of area of the hospital, the ophthalmology area. The operating room survived. There are some cracks in the wall, but it seems structurally sound. Uh, the clinic uh, rooms have been improved. We put in air conditioning, better lighting, sinks in the rooms for washing hands. Uh, so in going back to the safety aspect, the last time I was there was in January of 2021. Couldn't get there during COVID uh, because I didn't want to be in Haiti and get COVID, not be able to come home. Being a, an older guy, uh, you know, I would be considered high risk and they have virtually no ICU beds in the country. So I figured it wasn't a good idea to travel there until I was vaccinated. And so two of us went uh, in January last year and uh, one of the others went in April. Uh, and at that point, things were actually going very well. They were doing a lot of surgery each week. Every day, they were doing at least a few cases. And uh, the clinics were being run well, and we, were, we thought we had made really good progress. Then in June of 2021, the president of Haiti was assassinated uh, in his sleep in probably the most protected place in Haiti in a place called Petionville, which is up the mountain, uh, much nicer climate. Uh, the rich people in Haiti live up that way. And so in effect, there's virtually no government. There is a prime minister. They were able to at least somewhat handle the earthquake in the south part of Haiti this year. And a couple hurricanes that hit that weren't major, but a lot of rain. But the big problem is that there's really no government. There's a national police. There's no army in Haiti. They're not in any shape to have an election. Unfortunately, all of this could have been prevented if the UN hadn't pulled out the year before. They had been there for a long time. There were some issues. You know, they, some of the people in the UN brought uh, cholera to the country again. Um, and there were some inappropriate actions by some of that UN force uh, with the local population. But in general, it provided a stabilizing force and none of the gangs could really take over. Now the gangs are affiliated with the pro-government and the anti-government factions. There can be random shootings in the street, uh, not necessarily targeted, just violence, uh, riot kind of stuff. So we've been told that we really shouldn't come down there. The people in Haiti, it's part of what they've lived through for decades. They go on, do their business and hope they're in the right place, not at the wrong time. And, uh, so all of that has, we were going to go down uh, last month and uh, the trip was canceled three days beforehand because all this was starting to happen. It's still happening. Uh, the State Department has four levels 
Uh, one is like going to Europe. Uh, you know, it's pretty much like going to the United States. Just watch out for where you are. And two is you can go pretty much where you want to, but really pay attention to where you are. Three is reconsider your plans and consider not going. And four is do not go. So even when we went back in January, it was level four, mostly due to COVID at that time. So then there's a problem because these organizations like C and Orbis and the big companies like Alcon and Johnson & Johnson don't give supplies to bring to countries because they don't want to be seen as encouraging you to go to places the State Department says not to. So we've gone during level four and used the materials that we either get directly from India, primarily Aravind, or you know sometimes we can get smaller volumes of things uh, from our own practices. Uh, the local rep may have them in the trunk of his car, but in general, we can't bring supplies down. So that's been difficult. So now we have to ship everything direct to Haiti rather than to be brought down unless we can get it ourselves. Yeah, that sounds really difficult. And it is something that I was wondering about as well. It was already a, an unsafe trip to go to Haiti because of just how unstable the country has been. But I'm sure ever since the recent political environment has been like, it's it seems almost impossible to go uh, as an American citizen, what are your thoughts on how this is gonna, how this is gonna change, or is this ever gonna change? And um, will the telemedicine aspect take front center in trying to continue ophthalmic education there? Well, we certainly hope to be able to go back. And in the past, there have been eras where there was political unrest. There was when Aristide came to power, and when Aristide came out of power, uh, were probably pretty similar to what's going on today. So yes, we're taking two different tracks. One is we're continuing on to do what we can from abroad to uh, continue the programs we have been doing. And some of that involves telemedicine, and some of it will probably involve trips at times where it's a little bit better. If they're not guns going off in the streets in between the hotel and the hospital, I'm willing to go. And, and I, a lot of my partners are. I wouldn't recommend, uh, we wouldn't be bringing residents and fellows and the like, uh, you know, just because we have a responsibility for their safety and we can do what we want, but we can't really do that with other people. So we put a lot of emphasis in uh, trying to support the wet lab. Uh, where we can get supplies, and to supporting the didactic telemedicine education. And a lot of those same pieces of equipment could be also used for teleconsultation, telemedicine. The part we don't have is the ability to manipulate a slit lamp from abroad. The technology is just starting now, um, where you know someone can look at a slit lamp and maneuver it in front of a patient that's not in front of them. Uh, but it's, it's a rather new concept and uh, the technology isn't well developed yet. So we have to depend on somebody learning to do a standard exam with the slit lamp so we can just watch what we would have. And by directly directing them, we can monitor surgical cases uh, once the new internet goes in that's fast enough to let us see what we need to see. We'll be able to review a video from cases that have been done, which will enhance their surgical experience, relying on their attendings to be the ones that, that are already in Haiti, monitoring them in the surgery, but we can go over you know, what went wrong, where the attending might not have enough time to do that. We have a lot of time because we used to spend the time coming to Haiti, and now we're not doing that. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to follow all these different paths. We're learning as we go along. It's exciting. Even though there was a residency, we're rebuilding it and we're rebuilding it to fit the community it's in. There may be other places that are similar around the world, but I think what we're doing is probably unique in many respects. Yeah. No, I think you guys have done a phenomenal job in very uncertain times, as well as an uncertain location that 
constantly changes, you know, from various standpoints. And I'm just really inspired and just in awe of how much I'm learning in this session, just from talking with you about the country of Haiti. And this is one of the greatest things about, you know, doing a podcast or talking virtually, we don't have to physically be seeing each other, because we can't in the in the pandemic environment. But at the same time, we still have our minds open to what is happening in the world. And this is this has been an incredible talk for me and something that I will cherish as I re-listen to these podcasts and learn about, you know, what was the case at the point that I did the podcast for the country and how do you think uh, things can change over time? And perhaps once I become a physician, uh, board certified, maybe there will be newer solutions to the issues that we are discussing here today. So I thank you so much, Dr. Myers, for your time and your expertise. And then lastly, you know, your amazing experience, not just, you know, in Haiti, but of the vast number of patients you've seen over your lifetime in practice in the United States. And you continue to do so much more for the field of ophthalmology. Thank you very much. I would very much enjoy having you come back to me after you've finished your residency to see what has changed in Haiti and elsewhere. What I've found is that by doing various things in ophthalmology along the way, being an educator, a private practitioner, working for various in the hospital system and the VA system in a training program, being involved in ocular pharmacology, uh, teaching at courses. All of these things keep me fresh, keep me excited. And so it, I think it's a good, good way to keep from getting into a rut. The only regret I have is I didn't get involved in global ophthalmology and a lot of these other areas until the second half of my career, because I think you can avoid burnout by taking a week or two weeks off, going someplace, doing a lot of good, being, you know, thanked profusely every day rather than having people complain to you about what their weight in the waiting room. Uh, all those things can, can get to you after a while. And if you have these periods of respite where, yes, you're on vacation, but you're using your skills to the maximum, that can make you a much better person and a much happier person. So I encourage all of you to do that. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I'm just uh, energized every time I talk with speakers like you, and I can't wait for the actual experience when I finally get to work with these patients in person again. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.